GM, GM. Welcome to Web3 Academy, your one trusted source to capitalize on the next big phase of the internet. Don't get caught in the hype cycle. I'm Jay Bird, and I believe that layer two rollups are going to change the world. That's why I'm carving a path for doers to confidently build and invest in Web3. Today on the show, we have Dino, one of the co-founders of Fluent Labs joining us. Now you might not have heard of Fluent because they're a newer company in the Web3 space, but they are somebody to pay attention to. Fluent is a layer two rollup platform that enables scalable application development using popular programming languages from the Web2 world. So you can use Rust, TypeScript, Solidity, and others to build on chain. This is a whole new paradigm, really, that focuses on improving accessibility for developers. One of the biggest problems we have on chain right now is we do not have enough developers. In this episode, Dino does a great job of telling us how many developers we have in Web 2 and how many we have in Web 3. And there is a massive gap. And if we're going to get to the point where we have as many people on chain as we do online, we're going to need a lot more developers. And that is what Fluent is all about, is helping more developers build on chain by making it easier for them to do. Now, the Fluent platform emphasizes ease of use, scalability, compatibility, and flexibility, all while catering to a community of builders that are focused on a more free and a more open web. This is the early stages of what is going to get us to having great games and great consumer apps and great social apps that are built on chain. We need to make it easier for devs to understand how to build on chain and to use the languages that they are familiar with. This is such an important conversation because if it's not for the developers, we're never going to get to the end result and the end goal that we all have in mind for where we think the Web3 world can go. And Dino is just such a great guest to break down the current problems and challenges and why he was so inspired to start Fluent and where he thinks Fluent and the future of on-chain will go as a result of really modular blockchains, which make it easier to build things in ways that are faster, more scalable, and more innovative. So get ready for a great episode with Dino. Before we jump in, we're just going to take a minute to hear from our sponsor. Modern newsletters are built on Paragraph. That's right. Paragraph is a brand new newsletter platform that combines the best parts of Web2 and Web3 to supercharge newsletters for both writers and readers. Build a community, not just an audience. Paragraph uses blockchain tech to allow readers to collect and own the words that matter to them. This takes reading a newsletter to the next level. With Paragraph, readers can mint, collect, and show off quotes from their favorite newsletters. This opens new possibilities like creators sharing revenue with fans. I also love their new feature, Paragraph AI. This integrates GPT-4 natively in Paragraph to create, edit, and improve your writing effortlessly with one click. And guess what? We at Web3 Academy are on board and have already moved our content over to Paragraph. We believe this is the future of newsletters because of the profound engagement it creates between creators and fans. So 
Whether you're a creator, writer, or an avid reader, it's time to check out Paragraph and capitalize on the opportunity of being early. Dino, GM, welcome to Web3 Academy. GM, man. How you doing? Good to be here. Great to have one of our original community members on the show. Uh, this is why we started Web3 Academy back a few years ago, was to be a part of those building in Web3. And here we are. You've been building in Web3, building Fluent, which we're going to dive into today. And you've been building alongside the Web3 Academy community. And now we've got you on the show because uh, you guys are launching some big things. So yeah, really, really excited to have you on the show. Today's going to be an interesting conversation because we're going to dive into the state of developers in Web3. It's not something we do a lot at Web3 Academy, mainly because we've, we've been so excited by the consumer applications, what's going on in SocialFi, what's going on in the sort of front-end facing side of blockchain. But if we ever want to make it to a billion users, we're going to have to get a lot more developers in the space. And so it's important that we take, take some time to talk about the state of developers. So I just want to start off the conversation today, Dino, with, in your mind, what's the current landscape of developers in Web 2? And maybe you want to compare that to the current state of developers in Web 3. Yeah, for sure. So I, I guess to set the stage, people have for the past couple of years been talking about how to get a billion users on chain. And at least the way we see things to get a billion users on chain, you have to get a, a million developers on chain. I mean, developers are the ones who are building these 10x better apps and then users are the ones who are opting to to use them. And we just think that we have a long ways to go to actually get a million developers on chain, but th there is a path there. So just to contract, contrast it, we there's probably in the, the most recent Electric Capital kind of developer report, there were like 20,000 developers on chain and there's like 20 there's like 20 million developers in the world. So how do we bridge that gap? At least at Fluent, we think that we need to create 10x better developer experiences to actually make a meaningful dent. That's what we're working on. So, okay. So we've got, I mean, there's a huge gap. We've got 20,000 on-chain developers, about that, right? Somewhere in that range. Tough to know the exact number. And then we've got about 20 million total developers in the yep. world. Most of those obviously... 99% working on web too. What's the roadblock or what do we need to do? What's required in order for us to get more developers into web three and developing on chain? It's just to ground it. I mean, everyone at this point is aware of Ethereum, right? And they're aware of, you know, all the benefits of building of something on Ethereum. Well, not all the benefits, but the, the kind of some of the core attributes of building on Ethereum. It's clearly known to be like a desirable destination. It's a well-known brand at this point. It's as they'd call it like a, an infinite garden. So like, how do you get into this garden? Like, how do you get developers building on it? I think there's been kind of two general roadblocks. One has been throughput and then the other has been accessibility. And I think that the throughput is is clear. We've been focusing on it with scaling solutions and L2s. I know you guys talk about some about that on this pod. And that mostly affects kind of like performance and cost. And, you know, we're solving those problems. I think that there are a ton of really amazing roll up teams, they're doing really great work there. And now we're at a point where we do have kind of an abundance of block space. But the thing is a lot of that block space, especially since most of the the rollups so far have been EVM rollups, which is basically uh, for those not aware, taking kind of like the same execution environment and the same way of program and the same languages on from the Ethereum L1 and kind of just like copying that onto rollups or L2. 
which is great for existing developers and existing applications on Ethereum and kind of moving them up in a more performant way. But it's not necessarily solving kind of broader problems for less crypto native developers. So the millions of developers that we're talking about. So then what's the other piece? Accessibility. Obviously, there's accessibility problems for kind of end users too, which obviously we're not going to talk too much about <laughs> at the moment, but there's a lot of work being done there. And that's clearly a very important piece. Just to segment kind of the developer part of it, I don't think current rollups have really done as good of a job solving the, accessi the developer accessibility portion. So what does that actually mean? Well, right now, developers to build on Ethereum or Ethereum rollups, they have to learn blockchain-specific languages. Like, for example, Solidity is a blockchain-specific thing. Like, that doesn't exist. It's new because blockchain is relatively new. That hasn't existed. It doesn't exist outside of the blockchain space. So that's like just an extra thing somebody has to learn. It's very specific, and it's not necessarily you know tailored for all the different types of use cases. And contrast that with kind of the, the general purpose languages that exist in the world. Not only are people familiar with them already from Web2, they've been around for years and years and years and years, but there's also like 10 to 20 common ones, and developers understand very clearly that they pick up different there's, there's just tools and you pick up different tools to solve different tasks and developers get that. So it's very constrained currently in the blockchain world, even with rollups in terms of like developer experience. I mean, even the languages part is probably only probably less than 50% of the, the real challenge. I mean, the bigger developer learning curve is actually learning how to program for smart contracts and blockchains. I mean, these are, this is kind of like a very esoteric thing. <laughs> and, and over time, you know, I think we can abstract more and more things away for certain use cases, but you know, we have ways to go. Yeah, it's such a good reminder. It's so easy to forget what is what has happened so far. And when Ethereum was built, there wasn't NFTs. Nobody even had the concept of NFTs. So Dick, there's a very simple example of something that we discovered over time. And then you have a whole bunch of developers who are like, okay, now I'm going to build something using NFTs. And people have to learn how to do that because we don't know what we don't know. So it's very difficult. It's sort of like a big chicken and an egg problem. Like we all talk about we want a billion users, but it's like, well, if we don't have, I, I think your, your estimate is we need a million developers. We've got a long way to go. If we don't have a million developers, then we're not going to get a billion users because we're not going to have the apps, the necessary use cases to attract those people in. And the developers aren't going to come because it's too difficult. Like it's, really hard for them to learn. Like you said, they got to learn a whole new language. When you mention languages, just so yeah, I, I am not a developer by any means, so forgive my uh, ignorance here. Are all on-chain languages new and unique to on-chain or do some languages cross over between Web 2 and Web 3? It, that's a good question. So there's been both just across a bunch of different like fragmented ecosystems, right? So like Within the Ethereum ecosystem, it's really just been the blockchain-specific stuff. So like the blockchain-specific execution environment of the EVM, which has certain types of constraints and makes certain types of trade-offs. It's good for some things, but not for other things. And then blockchain-specific languages, there's a couple of them like Viper, et cetera, but people know Solidity and that's the one that everybody uses. But again, certain types of trade-offs for certain types of use cases and not as good for other things. So to, to us, it's all about developer choice. So yeah, to answer your question, there there has been other ecosystems that have built using more general purpose languages, like some of the other L1s over the course of the past five, 10 years have experimented with more kind of general purpose languages like Rust and TypeScript and C++ and things like that. 
but that's again that's only one half one piece of the puzzle right like i mean a lot of those ecosystems never really reached like escape velocity on like their core blockchain thing itself so it's if you don't reach that escape velocity, it's it's kind of hard to, that's almost like a prerequisite and really only like Bitcoin and Ethereum and, you know, maybe Solana that's emerging as has really got to that point. So I think it has been tried in a number of different places, but it just makes more sense to do that on top of a blockchain that has already, you know, reached escape velocity and that people want to use. Right, right. Maybe one thing that would be helpful to just sort of ground this conversation is you've been building for a while now, Web 2 before Web 3. Can you give us an idea of how do builders in the Web 2 world, how do they build? How do they select tools? What are the implications when they are deciding what to build with? Uh, maybe we can use an example there to understand, okay, this is how developers are used to building. Yeah. So then how does that impact the way that they would build in Web 3? Sure. Yeah. Let me put this in in context from you know with how things played out over time in the Web two space, right? So you know at the beginning when the the cloud started becoming a thing, people built in very monolithic design. So you hear probably a lot of talk these days about modular versus monolithic, and and now I'm putting in that Web two context. But what does that actually mean, right? So okay, you have Amazon, right, in the early two thousands, and they'll build their their you know, OG website and they got their search function and then they got their payments function and then they got their reviews and ratings function or something like that. And the mon monolithic approach to building this application, which is how they did it originally, is to put it in one big fat like blob of code. And like in a way that seems easier, oh, it's just one big thing. But then when you actually come to scale, it gets much more difficult. And what Amazon found and what I'm using Amazon as an example, but this actually took over the entire you know, mobile cloud industry, this is how backends are built today. It transitioned from them building this like monolithic code base to build this, you kept taking each of those functions, the core functions, and kind of like separating them to be iterated on, experimented with, updated, troubleshot independently and scaled independently. So it, it was way easier for Amazon and a lot of the other kind of like, you know, cloud scale companies to scale their businesses and scale their applications this way. And that ended up just taking over the design space. And then that's what you would now call kind of like a modular architecture in the cloud. They'll call it microservices because each of those little things are like tiny little services that are like working in collaboration with each other. That's how apps are built on the back end today. And then what that also enables is from on the developer side of things, it makes it so developers can just kind of pick the best tools for each job, right? So like. We talked a little bit about the languages, but it extends all the way down the stack. Like developer can kind of take the database that's like best suited for them. The developer can take, you know, a number of different tools and kind of like stitch them all together. I mean, if you're Uber, you don't have to build, you know, the text messaging function when you're just getting started. You can use Twilio. You can just plug it into your app. So even though a lot of people will will look at Uber and be like, oh, that's one app, these things are built in a very modular way on the back end. And so the, ultimately that ends up being much better for developers because you can, you know, take the best tool for what you need to do and make the best possible experience for your users. Right. Yeah. And so does that mean that Web3 is following the same sort of path of we also on chain sort of started monolithic because we just didn't have all of these modular tools built out yet. In the beginning, there was only Ethereum and it had to do all everything on that. And then over time, as more people built more 
systems and more functions, then there's more pieces built that allow you to pick and choose which piece you want. Like, is that a, is that path the same thing happening in Web3? Is that just a natural path of sort of the evolution of software? I think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that we're learning from kind of the best of Web2. I mean, it's just like a better, I think that we've learned that it's just like a better way to kind of build complicated systems. I mean, if you think about it, even like you know, the systems that we experience in everyday life, like your your brain is modular, right? They're like, whatever, like 10 to 20 different like components that each specialize in their own thing and they work in tandem. And there's just a lot of examples of like big complicated systems. And the best way we as like humans have learned to build these things is with specialization and collaboration. And that's certainly a lesson that we've, we've learned over all of these years in the cloud. And yes, yeah, so a- absolutely, we're taking the best of that. Right. Okay. So in the Amazon example, it made sense to go more modular because it enabled them to scale. It enabled them to, I guess, innovate faster. They didn't have to build all the tools themselves. They could just pick off the shelf tools as needed. When we talk about modular blockchains in the Web3 context now, what problems do they solve? Why do we need modular blockchains? Yep. So yeah, it comes down to to specialization again, but let, let's just let's try to make that as concrete as possible without getting like too in the technical weeds. So, one interesting module in that in the modular stack are rollups, right? You've talked about rollups, you've talked about L2s. So it's like, why would you, you know, what what's up with all these L2s that are emerging? Why are there so many being created? Why did why did Flipkart just say that they wanted to build their own L2? Like, what does that mean? What value is that actually providing to people? Well, it still just comes back to enabling developers to build the best possible to make the trade-offs that lead to the best possible end user experience or even just experience or benefits for the company or whatever it might be, but like this customization and specialization. And so, you know, why would you build, for example, like an app-specific rollup instead of deploy on like a general purpose rollup? You might do that for a number of reasons. So maybe you're a business and you're trying to build a certain app and you want the fees to be more predictable, right? If your application ends up being just like a smart contract on a shared environment, whether that's Ethereum about one or a general purpose rollup, you're competing for fees with all the other things on there. And maybe it's more important for your business rather than the the extra composability of being, because there's benefits too, right? Instead of the composability benefits of being on those shared environments, it's more important for your business to have like the better control over costs of being in an isolated environment. So you lose a little bit of the the ease of use of composing with other things, but you gain in the predictability of cost there. Same thing goes for predictability of performance or just a certain type of performance characteristics. Let's just say you're building some type of game or experience where you need it to be like super high throughput. If you deploy as a smart contract on Ethereum L1, certainly, but even on like an OP mainnet or a scroll or even like general purpose fluent, you don't get to control the exact performance characteristics. So I think it's really, you know, that's kind of like the base case for why you would, what you would want to customize, but it also, the design space is huge. I think it's going to get very, very interesting. It's going to get very, very weird, very, very fast, like a pretty cool way. Cause you know, you can also incentivize different actions on your own rollup, right? Like you can have, you know, a decentralized set of whatever, I was going to say sequences. I don't want to get too technical, but like you can basically have kind of like the rewards for the people ordering the transactions to be distributed to incentivize certain actions or certain participants in the network. Or you can subsidize fees for users. Maybe it's important for there to really be minimal fees for users. You can basically take some of those, you know, rewards that are generated and use that to kind of subsidize gas. So there's all different types of things that you can do. 
And just depending on what's most valuable to you as a developer, and obviously that is because it's most valuable to your business. Right, right. Okay, there's so much to unpack there. I want to pause and explain modular blockchains in layman's terms for everybody. Uh, I think everybody understands modular blockchains and probably knows more about it than they think they do, to be honest. But you've written great articles about this. Uh, could you just sort of give us what are the modules? You mentioned rollups being one. What are the modules in a modular blockchain that we all can kind of conceptualize? Yep. So I mentioned rollups before. Rollups can be considered one of the four main modules in modular blockchains. So rollups are one flavor of the execution layer, right? So let's think about these things in terms of these modules as, as layers, just because that's how people seem yep. to talk about them. So there's the execution layer, that's rollups and other things like rollups. There's the settlement layer, there's the data availability layer, and then there's the consensus layer. So just in this, try, I'll try to put it in like the simplest terms possible. So the execution layer is where things, where the actual transactions get processed and where the state that the users are interacting with. So, you know, if somebody has X number of coins versus Y number of coins or a certain application, maybe it's a social application, you know, you have five Twitter followers, you have five on-chain Twitter followers, well, that's sitting in the state of the execution layer. So that's what users are interacting with. Then just to ensure that the execution layer is as secure as possible, it uses a settlement layer, which means the rollup or whatever you hear, ZK rollups or optimistic rollups, they're posting these proofs, either zero knowledge proofs or fraud proofs to then get checked somewhere else. And so the place that does the checking to make sure there wasn't fraud or to make sure that you know everything is being done correctly on the rollup or the L2, that is being done on the settlement layer. Often that's Ethereum. So people just like post the L2 post thing onto Ethereum. The data availability layer is really just to ensure that the data was published. It should probably be called the data publication layer, but basically the, the blockchain can't keep on progressing forward if it doesn't know the state of things. So it needs to be able to see that the data was posted. All the nodes need to be able to say, okay, the data was posted. So now I can compute it and then get the next date for the whole thing to keep chugging along. And then the consensus layer is basically the ordering of these transactions at the very bottom of the stack. So it, in this case, you know, it would be Ethereum that's doing the final set of ordering at the end of the day, which basically everything else kind of like rolls up into. And so it, in the beginning, Ethereum played all of these roles. And now over time, Ethereum is slowly being pushed just down the consensus layer. Long term, do you think it'll only be, Ethereum will just be the consensus layer and then other tools will be the ones that enable these other layers? Yeah. So I think in the long term, Ethereum ends up uh, providing me like mostly two of those functions, two or three of those functions. So it's not entirely, it's not outsourcing all of them. So I think Ethereum will end up being a really good data availability layer and it'll end up being a really good consensus layer. It's already a really good consensus layer. layer. It'll be a good data availability layer with the addition of like 4844, which you guys might have talked about. With not, not a, yeah, proto dank sharding a, a yeah, little yeah. bit. Yeah, we haven't gone too deep into the technicalities, but you can quickly explain yeah. what that's going to enable. So right now, Ethereum is a really good consensus layer, right? Like because there's high economic security, it's really hard to like change the final ordering of the transaction because you need a ton of money. So it makes it, making it a really good consensus layer. So it's already that, it's going to stay that. 
it's not a very good data availability layer right now because to actually post the transaction data on Ethereum, it just costs a lot of money, which is why you start to see people posting the transaction data other places like Celestia and Eigenlayer and all this stuff, which are also really good. But I, we, we, you know, I can I can unpack those if if you want to. But basically, like Ethereum is really expensive to put the data, but it has to go somewhere. Over time, Ethereum ends up being a really good data availability layer because of like what you just said, proto dank sharding, dank sharding, and all that really means is you know the data is getting cheaper and cheaper to put on Ethereum because it's getting kind of like split up into these chunks and distributed, basically getting sharded, if, if that's like a term people know. Mm-hmm. And then it, it ends up being a really good settlement layer, obviously, because, you know, it can verify, you know, you trust it to verify those proofs. I, I think it keeps those three main functions over time and ends up being really good at those three main functions. But that said, there's always similar to with kind of internet bandwidth, like people are always pushing the boundaries of what's possible. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even if Ethereum can scale the data and like, you know, get data availability to a massive degree, in my opinion, developers will end up just keep pushing it. They'll just keep dumping more things on there to a point where it does fill up. And then you right. still need to always use something like for certain use cases, like a Celestia or an Eigen DA. I, I see it being very good at those three things, but that doesn't mean you, you know, certain use cases aren't going to make different trade-offs. Right, right. I, I really like the way you keep using the word trade-offs because we talk so much about scale. And I think everybody understands that because they experience it, right? When there's a lot of activity on chain, gas gets very expensive, and you realize pretty quickly that we could never have users paying you know, $10 just to do a simple transaction, right? We'll never get a billion people at that rate. We need that. But it's not just about scale here. It's also about the trade-offs of what you are trying to build and enabling that to happen in the way that you want it to happen. And I think it's important to see it from both those perspectives. Now, I want to start to talk about Fluent. But before we do, I know you were inspired by Celestia and you brought Celestia up. Why were you inspired by Celestia, why did that lead you to start Fluent with your co-founder? It's interesting because the way I got into this space, I was never uh, so much of like a DeFi degen. Like I've come from the cloud infrastructure space. I've done some stuff in like, you know, ML, machine learning inference. I've done some stuff in these microservices and kind of like cloud developer tooling like I've been talking about. And so I started to kind of dabble in, in crypto maybe in Web3, maybe, you know, three, four years ago. And the first thing I did kind of cling on to was this paradigm of like mod- like mod- modular blockchains, people who were really talking about it were the, the Celestia folks. And they just really, at that time, before modular became like the meme that it has today and the movement that it has today, like they really understood at like a very fundamental level that like, you know, this specialization was going to be important. And so like what they've built, and it's been, you know, I've gotten to know the Celestia team really well, and they're all really great. And what they've built is kind of like the first modular blockchain that only does the data availability part. And it just showed what's possible, like, and I think has inspired kind of like a whole next wave of specialization for each different function. I just think that that ends up in the long run creating this crazy rate of innovation that never would be possible in the monolithic design. So I I was definitely very inspired by that. It resembled kind of the experience that I had coming into the space. It just clicked. And I wouldn't necessarily say that that is the kind of like reason we started Fluent per se, but it, it pushed me right down the modular rabbit hole, which got me more involved in rollups, which kind of did mm-hmm. end up Fluent. So. Okay. 
So let's lead into, so why, why did you found Fluent? What is the sort of the mission and the vision of Fluent? So kind of like we started the, the episode with, I mean, we really do think that 10x better, 10x to 100x better developer experiences are just needed or required to actually make a dent and get us to a million developers and, and a billion users. And our vision is to make you know programming for Ethereum as similar as possible to just programming for the web today. And I think that that starts with what we're doing right now, which is enabling kind of general purpose programming languages and making it easier for devs to just start building on chain. But I, I think that the design space is for L2s and L3s is vast. And I think we're just as an industry starting to scratch the surface on it. And I think over time we can get to a point with Fluent where for certain types of use cases, it almost feels like a, I don't know, this might be like developer, like nomenclature, but just like a serverless type experience, like where you basically just take your code, you don't have to learn much, anything blockchain specific or much new things. And you just kind of throw it over the wall. And in in web two, the word serverless means kind of throw it over the wall to AWS on server. But in blockchain, that means, you know, the experience would be throwing it over onto Ethereum and just like having a true web two native developer experience while getting all of the benefits under the hood of, of Ethereum and blockchain. Right. That's kind of where we see things going for a lot of different, for a lot of different use cases. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I've never heard the term throw it over the wall before. So thank you for uh, bringing me up to speed on some dev talk. So we've been talking about what you're building at Fluent and enabling more devs to get into the space. We we haven't really explained Fluent yet. So let's let's take a pause here. What's the mission and vision of Fluent? Yep. So the mission and vision of Fluent is to make programming for Ethereum as easy as programming for just the web today, right? And the way we're doing that is with something called WebAssembly, which we don't need to get too into the details, but basically there's this technology that has been transformative in the Web2 space for developers. And we're just taking that and moving it into blockchain and putting it on Ethereum to hopefully provide similar effects. So what basically what WebAssembly or WASM in short did for Web2 um, was enable developers to use all different types of languages in the browser. So previously, what you had to do if you wanted to build something like a web app in the browser is write in JavaScript, one language. And JavaScript's often very easy to use, but it's not the best for all different types of applications or, or use cases. And so what is that doing? That's making kind of developers compromising the experience. So this thing called WebAssembly came along, WASM for short, and it made it so you can basically run it, practically any programming language in the browser, even the really, really performant ones that developers, again, know is best for their use case. So what did that actually look like? What effect did it have? One decent example was actually Figma. So Figma has, you know, everybody knows Figma. It, uh, you know, became a whatever $20 billion product from being like very, very performant. And it kind of like showed what's, uh, you know, something that's possible in the browser that was never possible before, which is like an interactive design tool. And the way they're able to do that is because the actual thing, the, the app is written in C, which you need something like a Wasm to be able to run a C-based really performant program in the browser. So it was this like transformative thing that, you know, made Figma kind of just take off and, ha- and create this way better experience for users. And at the end of the day, that's kind of wasm under the hood that's enabling it. So you can see how that starts to rhyme with the kind of mm-hmm. Ethereum analogy we were talking about before, right? So 
Ethereum, similar to the browser in my example, is this platform that everybody wants to build on, but it has certain constraints. And so what we're doing is we're taking that WASM technology and we're putting it onto Ethereum so that people can take all of these different languages similar to Figma and kind of like optimize for their use case. And you can kind of intuit that it makes new things possible that weren't available. That's kind of our general vision. It's to kind of take the best of Web2 and, you know, use it to transform building on Web3. I, I love that. So could a Web2 developer without knowing any Web3 smart contract or Solidity, could they come in and use Fluent and build on chain right away? There's a couple different things. The first thing that we're starting off with is is kind of the general purpose smart contract environment. And that is, you would in fact have to, I mean, it's easier because you get to program in these general purpose languages, but you still do have to program via smart contracts like that programming model. So in the near term, no, you still need to learn a thing or two. In the longer term, like we're also developing a roll-up framework so you can customize your app-specific roll-ups for certain needs. And part of that, if you want to, you know, everything comes with a trade-off, obviously, but if, if you want to, you can abstract away the smart contract and kind of like actual blockchain programming model. And for that type of use case, develop an environment where, yeah, you know, people don't even need to kind of like learn those blockchain specific details at all. And that's kind of where the serverless experience type thing comes into play. So it's, it's a spectrum. I think at Fluent, we want to make it so, you know, people can use anything along that trade-off space that makes sense for them. You can deploy on the Fluent L2 if you just want kind of a general purpose environment and you can, you know, customize anything you want with our framework. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. It's so, so exciting to, to hear the focus on building tools like this, which is just going to make it so much easier for devs to answer, enter the space. Can you mentioned some categories that you're excited about gaming, social consumer apps. When you say that you're excited about these categories, I assume that's in the context of what you're building at Fluent. Why do these categories need Fluent? What does Fluent enable for these different categories? And you can pick one or talk about all of them if you'd like. Yep. So yeah, the categories that I, I, we might've been talking about offline were like gaming, social, consumer type experiences. I think that these are very fascinating categories because number one, I think we're technically ready for them. Mm -hmm. uh, so previously, you know, what we've saw, what we're solving right now is kind of like the, the scalability and throughput. And, you know, those apps, those types of apps typically need much higher scalability and throughput. They're low stakes, right? They're like high performance, low risk when you look at it that way. Like if you, you know, if we jump from kind of DeFi DGENs to high stakes institutional like RWAs and stuff like that, which is all, which is all really cool, but the stakes are much higher. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what, what's interesting about kind of social gaming consumer is, you know, it pushes the boundaries of what's possible techno technologically, but the stakes are much lower. And so I think that this is just like a nice sweet spot to focus on right now. And a lot of people are just very excited about these use cases and they're coming to Fluent and they're saying, hey, like I want to be able to, you know, build, I want to build in, in Rust on Ethereum, I want to build in TypeScript on Ethereum. Everybody knows that kind of like rollups are here and they want to kind of burst open the design space of what, what they can build on it, on Ethereum. You mentioned earlier in the show, recent news that Flipkart is launching their own L2 using Polygon CDK, so an L2 on Ethereum. And it brings up a very interesting conversation around, are we going to see apps 
all launch their own L2? Are all companies going to have their own L2? Why would they have their own L2? Like, why did Flipkart launch their own L2? Can you talk a little bit about what is made possible by having your own L2 and why you might want to control that part of the experience? The reason you might want to do that is, as you said, to control different parts. So like maybe one thing that you want to control would be the like the cost. So maybe you have an application that really needs like the lowest possible fees. Well, if you're on a shared environment with just your one smart contract among thousands of smart contracts that are all competing for block space, well, you can't really control the fees. It's a market. They, they are what they are. Mm-hmm. And so you're a business and you want to better control those fees either because you just need them to be really low or because for your own business needs, you need them to be predictable. I mean, either of these could apply or both. And so that's why you might do it from a cost standpoint. Kind of same thing goes for for performance where you you know, you know might need something that's very highly performant. I mean, I, I don't know what Flipkart actually plans on on building, but you know, you might be some type of gaming studio and you might need to, you might want to build a very highly performant game in Rust that needs to move really, really fast because if it doesn't move really, really fast, then maybe it's a it's a poor experience for your users. Often games work that way. There, there's just a much bigger design space as well. Like, I mean, you can subsidize things like gas fees. You can incentivize certain types of actions or certain types of apps or certain types of developers. You can turn all of these knobs and customize for your use case in particular, which is really nice. Yeah, well, in the case of the Flipkart, I, I don't have a ton of details but my understanding is the main reason Flipkart, just for everybody who doesn't know, Flipkart is the largest e-commerce uh, website in India. They're basically the Amazon of India. It's a marketplace you can go, you can buy literally anything. It's bigger than the Amazon is in India. Their largest uh, shareholder, I think, is Walmart. So massive company, $38 billion in annual revenue. Sorry, valued at $38 billion, not revenue of $38 billion. And they recently launched a loyalty program on chain. And so that is the reason I think that they are launching their own L2 is because when you think about on-chain loyalty, you need to totally abstract blockchain. Like loyalty is not about financial transaction, right? You're not trying to, you know, somebody's not going to pay you to receive their points (laughs) if they're getting some some sort of loyalty from you, right? So you got to remove gas fees and you also need probably a lot of transactions because loyalty gets into like much higher scale of transactions, not quite as high as social. You bring up social, right? Like you think about social, you need that high scale. So I don't know if that sort of tweaks your mind as to why Flipkart might have, might be launching an L2. But I think, again, it really comes back down to what are they trying to do on chain? And so far, what most people have been building for on chain is finance DeFi, right? Like that has been the biggest thing so far and stable coins, right? A lot around stable coins. We've had lots of building in the other categories that you mentioned, gaming, social, and consumer apps, but we haven't really had any apps take off in that space. I mean, gaming, every month, I swear, I'm like, this is the month that there's going to be a game that goes big. Still haven't had it. Social, starting to have it. Lens, Farcaster, DSO, None of them have really reached any meaningful scale yet in terms of user and consumer apps. Yeah, okay, starting to see it. Friend tech, but friend tech was really mostly just DGENs. Reddit, maybe you could argue on the consumer app side. Nike, Starbucks, although those are still in beta. 
So when you think about it, we really don't have any on-chain apps or sites that have reached this scale yet. But if they're going to reach the scale that we want them to of you know, millions, hundreds of millions, billions of users, they're going to need to control that experience in multiple ways. And as I say this out loud, like it paints the picture for why you would need your own to control your own piece of the mob of these modular blockchains. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a whole there's a whole spectrum, right? I mean, there's on one side of the spectrum composability and the other side of the spectrum uh, is control. And I definitely think for some of these use cases, even in social and gaming and and consumer, for some things, social um, composability will be more important. For other things, control will be more important. So, I mean, if you're building something where you want people to be able to like ex- in the most easy, seamless way, kind of extend your game or extend your social experience, you might still go with kind of a general purpose environment, especially if it's something that doesn't really have that much performance. Let's just say like it's a certain game that, you know, that where, where somebody only takes, takes a move like every once in a while and there's just not much data going on. Like, I think that you can definitely still kind of put that on a general purpose environment. But yeah, I think for the for a lot of different use cases that are going to emerge, especially in the context of, you know, I know your audience is a lot of like business folks. So in the context of like companies, I think that the app specific design will be like especially interesting. I think one of the things that stands out to me is, you know, there's obviously always the, the question of profit and loss, right? And so I think it is becoming cheaper to build your own roll up your own layer two because it was i mean it was very expensive it was very hard to do before and i'm guessing that that cost is only going to continue to go down over time and there will be more tools that make it easier to do these things so we will see more apps taking that step because it's possible to do this whereas before it just wasn't possible because it was like oh well you're gonna have to go hire a full engineering team and that's going to cost you so much money and you don't even have the profit to do that. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I mean, that that's another thing that's really cool about modularity, right? Because like the more you can kind of layer things and the more you can abstract things, each layer that you go up, the easier it gets and like the lower cost it gets for for people to innovate. Like you could get to a point, even describing kind of like that serverless type vision that I was saying before, you get to a point where, you know, a dev at a company or a dev who doesn't even like know much about blockchain can kind of just come, throw up some code and Technically, they they built on chain. They built on Ethereum, and so I think when you dramatically lower the cost in terms of time or money or effort to build on chain, I, I think that you do end up getting an explosion of kind of creative energy, and then just like way way better apps. So I'm I'm definitely excited to see, and I think that'll just it'll just keep going in that direction. It'll get easier and easier and easier. I love it. I love it. Okay, before we wrap up here, for those listeners out there who want to participate in this explosion of on-chain building, how can they get involved with Fluent? How can they connect with you? On X, formerly Twitter, I feel like that's a that's a pretty good spot. So you can follow us at, at FluentXYZ. You can follow me. I'm sure there's going to be a link, but 0x DinoEggs. Yeah, definitely reach out. I'm on there way more than I should be. So have a slide in the DMs if you want to like you know, ask any questions about what we talked to talked about today or, you know, learn about Fluent or just jam on things. Amazing. Awesome. Okay. Quick speed round to wrap up here. What's an NFT you'll never sell? Oh, my tiny dinos, man. My my avatar. <laughs> That's right. Tell for those those who don't know, 
about the tiny dino because I'm sure most people don't know that NFT collection. Can you give some background on it? <laughs> I like the art. I don't know, man. I've always liked the really like pixelated things and, and that one was one of the first like truly CCO ones and I thought it was cool and just got it and it just kind of stuck. And then your name became Dino, except everybody yeah. pronounces it Dino. So <laughs> the evolution of your brand is uh, very, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't even like necessarily care that much of uh, about being pseudonymous, but it ended up just being people started to know me by that and just kind of rolled with it. But yeah, so now I, I can't change the picture now. <laughs> I love it. Other than following you and Fluent on X or Twitter. Who else should our listeners follow? Who else do you find yourself learning a lot from? Oh, I, I learn a lot from Sri Ram Kanan from Eigenlayer. He has a really amazing way of kind of taking some of these like really complicated, like more infrastructure type concepts and making them super simple. Cool. That's a great suggestion. Yeah. He's uh, such an incredible leader in the space. Okay. Last question. What's a must read book that you find yourself recommending to friends and family? Friends and family. Oh, maybe you know what? Maybe that's actually maybe it's not friends and family that you recommended to. <laughs> yeah, favorite book. Honestly, for what I'm working on, obviously that's that's a lot of what I spend my time learning about and thinking about. Read Architects of the Web. It walks through kind of like the the '90s and how kind of the internet, the consumer internet and web developed. And I think that if you're somebody who's trying to understand like what's happening, especially obviously in the L2 space, which is what I'm playing in. It is just, there's so many parallels. It's so insightful. Amazing. Love it. Dino, thanks so much for the time. Thanks for joining the show today. Very excited to follow Fluent and to see all the developers that I'm sure are going to flock to you guys because who doesn't want to build on-chain right now? And you are making it easier and more accessible for everybody. Love it, man. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening and everybody have a great day. Thank you for listening to Web3 Academy, your one trusted source to capitalize on the next big phase of the internet. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and subscribe or follow so that you don't miss the next one. While you're at it, there's a link in the description for our free newsletter where we provide timely and relevant Web3 insights so you can confidently build and invest in Web3. Make sure to subscribe today. One final note. This podcast is for educational purposes only and nothing we say is financial advice. Crypto and Web3 are risky and you should never invest more than you're willing to lose. Thank you, friends, and see you in the next one.